Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. Well, it's about time for another State of the Union address with your MEC Chairman, Captain Will McQuillan. A lot has occurred over the last few weeks, and to discuss that, I brought in some other pilots. Besides our chairman, I have Captain Joe Youngerman, Executive Vice President, Captain John Wrigley, MEC Secretary, First Officer Chris Gruner, Negotiating Chairman, Captain Ronan O'Donohue, Strategic Planning Chairman, Captain Keith Lewis, MEC Vice Chairman, and a new voice to some, Captain Will Swovlin, Membership Committee Chairman. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us, David. Thank you, David. Always appreciate the opportunity. So before we get into the things that have been affecting the Alaska pilots directly, there's an issue that's affecting all ALPA pilots, in fact, all airline pilots nationwide, the uh, KCM, the known crew member issues. And uh, Captain Joe Youngerman, our executive VP, has been dealing with that at the national level. So Joe, can you fill us in on what's the latest? Thanks, David. Yeah, I think that uh, the KCM issue is something that virtually every uh, ALPA pilot is uh, is finding frustration with in their travels to and from work and both at work as well. Uh, the uh, TSA administrator, David Bukowski, was invited to speak at the last executive board, uh, which took place in uh, Vallow Park in October of last year. Uh, the MEC chairman from various carriers were able to express their frustration to Administrator Prokowski about a number of issues. Uh, of course, we've been very concerned about the rate of uh, random screening, about the process of sending people to pre-check, and of course, what we consider the absurd requirement uh, when a pilot is not in uniform. Uh, to be restricted along with regular passengers with respect to uh, liquids. Uh, I think Mr. Administrator Pekoski got a unfiltered, uh, very direct uh, message sent to him about how the Airline Pilots Association membership feels about uh, where we're at today with the KCM process. and. Uh, I think our, our president has also continued the dialogue uh, in a very direct way with the administrator to try to get some of these pain points addressed with the TSA. Unfortunately, I would like to tell you that we've made significant progress on that, but it continues to be an uphill battle. Some, some of the uh, issues have been improved upon, the rate of uh, randoms has, has come down to a more reasonable level, uh, and I think that uh, pilots are finding a more consistent behavior from uh, uh, security screeners with respect to having to go to the pre-check line. But, you know, these other issues that I've mentioned are, are ongoing and, and still need to be addressed. So we've, we've evaluated some various ideas at the national level, and uh, those ideas are based on membership feedback. And as that, as that process continues, you'll hear more information coming from our ALPA president uh, over time. But I just want the pilots to know that it is definitely being understood and heard at the national level 
and at the local level that pilots are frustrated with the, the, the KCM system as it exists now and will continue to press for improvements and changes. You know, often it seems like they, they tell you that you've been randomly selected and it seems anything but random. You know, I might be the third pilot in a row to be asked, am I allowed to request to look at their screen to see if it's actually random? Yeah, it's it's my understanding that, that you have that right to ask. Uh, I, I can't guarantee exactly what, what the response is going to be from on any given day from any given uh, TSA employee. And of course, as always, I would recommend that pilots not get into confrontations with uh, TSA employees, but rather report this uh, to their uh, to their ALPA uh, representatives, and we can pass this up the chain. At the national level, they definitely do want to hear these reports. It allows our national officers to make the case for changes when we have actual reports from actual pilots experiencing uh, these sorts of uh, issues. And one thing that I would add is that uh, even if you're unsuccessful at the time to determine if you've been randomly selected, you can go log into uh, mykcmsupport.com. Rolls off the tongue, right? And use your KCM login and password to take a look at your last 60 days and validate whether you were truly randomly selected. If you are sent to secondary screening, are we allowed to go right to the front? How is national dealing with that, or how yeah. is the TSA dealing with that? I'm glad you asked level? that, David, because that was an issue that uh, was was really bad initially when this directive came down. Uh, I know from my own personal experience and those of others that I've spoken to, uh, they had similar experiences where we were told to stand in line. And uh, uh, Administrator Perkusky made it very clear that that is not his directive, that you are expected to go to the front of the line, and anyone that's uh, not following that directive, again, that, that should be reported up the chain to make sure that uh, that does get addressed. I will say that in the meeting he did express his frustrations that when he issues a directive that it, it takes a while for full compliance to take place, and, and I know He's frustrated by that and is, is trying to improve that. He's he's the seventh TSA administrator. There's been a high turnover rate in that job, and that's that makes it even more difficult to get things done when the leadership keeps keeps changing over. But the rule is you are supposed to go to the front of the line and not not stand in line and wait. Okay. Well, thanks for all that feedback and thanks for the work you're doing at the national level, Joe. My pleasure. Well, let's turn to the things that affect the Alaska pilots a little bit more directly and what we kind of come to be calling the State of the Union addresses. So, Will, in the last three weeks, we, a number of things happened. It kind of was kicked off around the holiday season when we had a bit of a meltdown on the Seattle ramp. What, what happened there and, and what, what actions did you take? Yeah, well, you certainly speak to something we all know is that pilot frustrations haven't really changed, but sometimes events bring them to a head. And I think that uh, that ramp belt down where we had a number of our ground handlers, um, you know, quit, walk off the job, become unavailable. Uh, it, it obviously, people were parked for up to over two hours, you know, between runways and unable to get to gates. And I think it was incredibly frustrating for our pilots have a high level of uh, commitment to our passengers and to service and also to uh, you know to the passengers obviously uh, the frustration comes to a tip and, and that frustration was heard absolutely just loud and clear 
that I think after a, a year's worth of flight path and constantly being told that, you know, we can compete with anybody, um, our pilots just watched us melt down because of rain, right? Uh, that led to obviously lots of emails, lots of feedback to the reps and a discussion over the weekend um, about that building frustration. You know, about I guess the underpinning narrative is that we hear one thing and yet we see another, right? We hear your concerns like at Flight Path. They say they hear us, yet nothing ever seems addressed. And that's the story since the, the merger and before, right? And then, you know, these mounting issues with contract compliance which I think that uh, we can speak to in general, and, and John Wrigley can certainly speak to more in detail since he has oversight. But uh, what I've heard time and time again is that these are all the reasons that pilots just simply aren't happy, and the time had just simply come to say something. Um, and I sincerely hope that the, the letter that we sent to, uh, to Mr. Tilden kind of reflected those frustrations accurately. And Will, did it have that effect? Did, did you hear back from Tilden? Oh, I, I certainly heard back from a lot of people. Uh, three phone calls from John Ladner over the course of several days, one from uh, Shane Tackett, one from Gary Beck, and then uh, a longer call that, uh, you know, was a, a complete uh, airing of, I don't know to call it airing of grievances, so to speak, but I just explained what underpinned that letter, right, with Brad Tilden on the, the 26th at about 9 in the morning. Um, you know, and I tried to, to stress everything that was said in the letter in terms of the contract compliance is at a crisis point. Um, the, the contract is a bright line or it isn't. And to the degree that it's not respected, and especially when it touches everything we do every single day, whether it's uh, training or scheduling or hotels, um, everything, every point of pain in our quality of life, in our work life, is, is touched by this lack of compliance. And uh, I tried to stress as well that to everybody who talked to me that whether you like it or not, and I don't know that they like it, that this is a brand new pilot group. Uh, you know, the reps are very accurately telling you how our pilot group feels. Um, and, you know, there's some suggestion, again, that the narrative is that ALPA stirs the, the pilots up, that we're stirring the pot as opposed to just simply reflecting what it is that we hear day in and day out from the pilots. Uh, and the, the other piece that I tried to impart, especially to uh, to Mr. Tilden is that the pilots have no appetite for your vision until you've demonstrated an appetite to address their concerns. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. These are real concerns and, and real pain points for the pilots that need to be addressed. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's to, th That letter was simply a reflection of what everybody is thinking and feeling on a daily basis. H how do you respond? I mean, this as, as salient as those issues are, they aren't new, and it's kind of what we've been saying for a long time. What, what was the reaction? Uh, a lot of listening. Uh, it, he said that he was there to listen and not to uh, not to counter or go point for point, and to, uh, I guess, to the credit, he didn't. says he took four pages worth of notes out of it, and uh, those same points have been echoed not just to him, but like I said, to... Uh, uh, to Gary Beck and to Shane Tackett and to certainly to John Ladner and they have them for action. They'll either respond affirmatively or they won't. Right. So what were some of the points that you made? In particular, you mentioned grievance issues, I believe. Uh, just the things that we had seen because there we've been told time and time again, oh, no, 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 the contract is a bright line, correct? And we wouldn't ever violate the contract. I've made it very clear that the contract is a bright line. 
And uh, in one of the subsequent phone calls that, uh, as I look around the room here, that several of us were on with uh, Gary Beck and, and John Ladner, the point was made that even though that bright line about the contracting compliance and expectations were set, for instance, in scheduling, that we had, uh, we call it the, the dirty dozen, that, that happened in the week subsequent to that bright line being struck and those expectations being set. So obviously the message hasn't been received and we need much more than hollow words, especially when it comes to issues like with the schedulers. One of the things that I want to emphasize is that we are looking for action. I mean, I said that we had a lot of conversations, right? Uh, and we've had those conversations as I look around again here in the room with uh, John Wrigley and with Joe Youngerman. Uh, we've had these conversations for a number of years. So talking about things, and, and that was one of the initial narratives was, oh, well, let's just make sure that we meet and talk on a regular basis about things. And talking is not enough. It, you need to see substantive change and action on the concerns that we've brought before you. And I think that's a real pain point, in all honesty, for Keith. Um, the one meeting that we got to attend together, um, they stressed over and over and over again the dialogue and then again in a labor leader call um, or was it the uh, yeah it was the the call with John Ladner when we were all together how many times dialogue came up and it was a real it was a, you keyed into it Keith really strongly uh, understandably because yeah you can talk all day everyone knows what the problems are and it's time to actually fix them and take action. So dialogue is great, but we need action. Yeah, I think that's a great point. As Virgin MEC chairman and on to my current role as EVP, I've either been directly involved in or uh, loosely involved in these discussions for the last nearly four years. The, the narrative hasn't changed. And if you're familiar with the movie Fifty First Dates, where every time uh, the conversation starts, it starts from square one. That's kind of how we feel. We shouldn't have to keep reiterating what our pain points are, what the problems are. You know, dialogue is great. Dialogue is wonderful, and we are all for dialogue. But it's got to be followed up, as Keith said, with action. Uh, I think the time is long past for us to, to, for there to be a need to sit down and explain to senior leadership what the problems are. They know what they are. They haven't changed. Our position hasn't changed. And unfortunately, their inaction hasn't changed either. We continue to wait for any substantive changes to occur. Mm -hmm. And I, I will say that we identified one concern around the scheduling issue, and that is to be determined. We've had some promises made of, uh, of ways to maybe address that and ensure that contractual compliance is a priority. And I hope that we'll report to you real shortly that they followed through on that commitment. One cautionary tale I guess we learned when we started to look at what had happened over that meltdown and kind of over that week around Christmas, um, the, the things that were narrated in the, um, the frustrations with scheduling, is we learned again pilots still don't know their contract fully enough to protect themselves. And uh, that obviously the scheduling wasn't going to offer them the opportunity to explain those those contractual rights you've got to know them and I think in particular uh, you know, they've taken advantage of the the Airbus community in certain ways because they're new to the to the CBA and maybe ways that were done 
or things that were done previously in the, the PRB that were acceptable are now protected. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. Um, I have oversight on contract compliance. And so I, I get a copy of every phone call message that comes in. And there's a huge disparity between the amount of questionable reassignments for the Airbus pilots versus the Boeing pilots. And it leads one to believe that scheduling is manipulating their knowledge of the contract. Keith, are they taking advantage? It's, I mean, is that a good way to say it? They're basically well, taking they're, they're not. They're certainly advising. They're not advising the pilots of their, of their contractual rights. That's yeah. the perfect way of saying it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, we've all heard the expression, knowledge is power. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with Section 25, particularly uh, the latter part, starting with about Section U, uh, I would advise every, every pilot to really review that, that area of the contract to make sure that you understand what your rights are uh, when, when reassignments are occurring and we're having weather meltdowns or what have you. Uh, crew scheduling certainly knows what, uh, what they can and cannot do. Uh, and to make sure they're following that, you've got to be equally informed. You've got to read that section of the contract and, and be well familiar with it. It's also important to know what uh, severe irregular operations really are. And that's laid out in the section 25 of the contract as well. And it's important that you understand that uh, an SIO cannot be simply declared by the company, that there has to, agree, has to be agreement by the association that conditions exist for that to take place. And should that happen, you're going to be notified by your uh, association uh, that it's ongoing. So make sure that uh, you're familiar with that section of the contract. Make sure that you're defending your contract. And if, it's, if your rights are violated, uh, file a grievance as appropriate. And one thing I'd say is that the that's 25Y that you're, you're speaking to in terms of the contract, but there's also an MOU to reference as well if you want to have a complete understanding of Correct. That. Thank you. Yeah. And when a severe irregular operations event is in effect, we will communicate that on official means. It, it's agreed to by the MEC, and will it'll be emails, text alerts, that sort of thing, so you, you should know about it. And there are significant things. The last one we did was a pretty severe earthquake in Anchorage a little over a year ago. So that those are the sorts of things that usually trigger uh, severe regular operations. Mm -hmm. Rain is usually not one of those things. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, the, and the, the communication will explain, because the, the SIO can be declared base-specific, fleet-specific, it's dependent. So that's why that com is important to read that. And it's also time period specific. It's revisited. It's not a blanket authorization for uh, sheer chaos. I would also just add, too, that, you know, as Will pointed out, there's an MOU uh, that, or a couple of MOUs that pilots should be familiar with with respect to Section 25, but there are also uh, stand notes. Every, every contract uh, has gone through a interpretation period over time where certain disagreements arise and uh, language in the contract gets interpreted. And I know Chewy, as, uh, as the guy who does a lot of oversight as far as grievances go, Chewy, do you want to speak a little bit about where pilots can find that information? Yeah, thanks, Joe. The, uh, the grievance stand notes, uh, we recently re released a de-identified uh, grievance summary. And included in that are stand notes that do talk about some of the more problematic sections of the contract. 
they're very much similar and based on the idea of the scheduling stand notes. Both of those can be found on the iPad or on the uh, Alaska Pilots uh, website. And uh, they are located in the respective sections. The uh, de-identified grievance summary with the uh, grievance stand notes is in the grievance tab and the scheduling stand notes is under the scheduling tab and they're also on the good reader. Will, in that call you were describing, you talked about how both you and the company had referred to the contract as being a bright line, meaning they saw a value in respecting it and not violating it. But what we've all experienced is that's not exactly the reality. There have been a lot of contract violations. And Captain John Wrigley, you've been spearheading the effort to keep an eye on that. What What have you discovered? Our contract compliance efforts, David, have been extensive. Most people think of the pre-grievance process. The stats are alarming. It is indicative of a company who does not respect the contract and treat it as a bright line. In 2019, we had a record 778 pre-grievances filed by our fellow pilots. Some of these contain multiple instances of the same alleged violations. So what this actually represents is over a thousand alleged violations for 2019. Almost every section of the contract has been violated. Now the company has met their contractual obligations to meet with us monthly and we presented 512 of those 778 grievances. While this is really important work. It's only part of the story. The MEC and several committees have been working in addition to the pre-grievance process. We have had direct intervention with several departments of the company to try and fix known violations. For example, extended and remote training produced 11 separate acknowledged violations of the contract by the company. Through direct intervention, several of those were fixed Some of those, however, remain to be problematic, and we are continuing to fight it and will continue to fight it. Yeah, I think, Will, that's a lot of what you were talking about in your conversations with the executive management, right? Mm -hmm. That contract is a reflection of the agreement that was mutually made between two parties in terms of how we're going to do business. And yes, to the degree that it is... um, not respected or breached, it reflects, a, I think it truly reflects what they think of you. I mean, you know, it's an expression of value. John, the work you've been doing, it's not just noticing the grievances. The work has achieved some positive results. You want to talk about that? I do. We have some success stories, David. We have had tremendous value returned to our pilots in these endeavors just this year alone. The Military Affairs Committee has recouped $2.5 million for our military members, uh, reservists, veterans, et cetera, um, through their efforts. Payroll, payroll came up with $2.77 million for our pilots. These numbers are staggering. These are ways in which the company was found to be non-compliant and has been forced to pay. Pre-grievance in 2019, the grievance committee came up with about 150000 But please understand, there's another $2 million in remedies sought through the 778 pre-grievances for, for 2019. 
There are countless grievances or countless issues that have been corrected. The process and our efforts are working. This is a tremendous return of value to our pilots. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, and it's, I mean, it's shocking and disappointing to hear how big those numbers are. I mean, especially when you look at the military affairs, that's, if I'm understanding what you're saying, that's 2.5 million that was owed to our veterans and military pilots that wasn't given to them. That is exactly right. That had incorrectly not been paid to our military members and the efforts of our military affairs committee forcing an audit, forcing the compliance with USERA, et cetera, brought about $2.5 million for those members alone. And from the standpoint of negotiating, it's really encouraging to hear as well, because as we move through and look to change the language in the contract, none of that really matters if the words in there don't mean anything. So I appreciate what all of our volunteers are doing right now to make sure that those words have validity and are something that the pilots can rely on and know that um, you know they have people here that are working really hard to make sure they're enforcing that. I think one thing that's important to note in there too is the, the broadness in nature across how many different divisions, it, not just the number of uh, grievances and remedies, sought and or, uh, you know, brought to uh, fruition, but but it really crosses all chunks of the contract. And I think sometimes people think, oh, it's just this one portion of the contract that's non-compliant, and it's really, it's across the board. Yeah, what I've really appreciated watching all of you in that work is the philosophy that we need to protect our contract anywhere and everywhere, or we run the risk of losing it everywhere. And I think that this MEC has really taken that to heart and, and gone after those violations wherever they find them. And our members are enforcing the contract because that's where the pre-grievance starts is with filing with a pilot who knows the contract was violated and they take the time and effort to file a complaint for resolution. Keith, I'm so glad you made that, uh, made that point. Of these 778 pre-grievances, the vast majority are single issues that have been brought by our pilots. What we've learned, David, is it is apparent that this is a culture that doesn't respect the contract. That's a strong statement, but in this case, the numbers really reflect that. It is a bold statement. I am expressing an emotion that is brought to us every day by our pilots. The numbers do back it up. Furthermore, there are some pain points that we, have, we deal with as an MEC and as a grievance committee. The responses for the company when things are brought to their attention sometimes is incredibly frustrating. Of the 512 pre-grievances that were presented to the company in 2019, 181 of them are still waiting a response and 37 are going to mediation doesn't seem that we can find solutions readily and easily. Sometimes we do. There are, there are a number that have been processed, but there seems to be some real struggles to get the company to show up with their research having already been done, ready to deal with tough and problematic issues, even if we disagree, to be able to work through these problems productively and find solutions proves to be a problem. And how are things going now that we're in a new year, 2020? We're still getting pre-grievances filed at the rate of about three a day.
Yeah, so Chu, I wanted to ask, are many of those grievances resolved as far as uh, the contractual obligation of the company, or are they mostly just uh, taken care of in terms of pay? The vast majority are indeed terms of pay. It tends to mask the issue, and we see it again and deal with it again. Yeah, it seems to me that's an opportunity there for the company to get ahead of things. I mean, if they don't want to see more grievances as we move forward, you know, the that's a place where we can sit down and figure these kinds of things out so that we don't have these problems moving forward. And that's, I know personally, what I'd like to see in an effective grievance process. Chris, in the beginning of this year was an important negotiating week you had with the company. Can you tell us more about what happened then? Yeah, David, this week is a important one. So as we speak right now, we're at the tail end of an MEC meeting that is run from January 13th through 17th. And going into this, we were very clear with the company that we wanted to understand where negotiations were headed. So we told them we wanted to report to the MEC fully on where we were on the major cornerstones of the contract. So as you recall, that's job security, uh, retirement, pay and work rules. So we haven't passed a pay proposal yet. We explained that in our opener. We will be doing that down the road. We did pass the other proposals. So for retirement and insurance, we gave full language proposals to the company on sections 27 and 28. And uh, we're still awaiting a reply on that. They have not yet gotten back to us on those. In regards to work rules, We are having some constructive conversations and starting to build a framework of what the work rule section could look like. However, largely we still have yet to put pen to paper and start writing the language. That's going to be coming very soon and we'll get a better sense of uh, where exactly that's headed and how committed the company is to improving your quality of life as we move forward. It is very important to note, I think, that we haven't decided on a line delivery system yet. So our focus still is and will remain as we move forward to get you your priorities in the best way that we can. And that's regardless of what tool we end up using, whether we stay with a current line bidding program or move to PBS. Uh, We're going to be looking for improvements to our current system if we have it or moving to PBS. Obviously, we'll be looking for a, a strong system there. But either way, we want to make sure that we put your priorities first and address those in the best way that we can. Chris, what about scope? Yeah, so David, that's the one thing that we've gotten full language back from the company on, and I'll say it's very disappointing. So the proposal we received fails to uh, even come close to adequately addressing the primary concerns of the pilots. And our opener lays out very clearly what we expect to get out of this contract. So as you move through this list, none of the bullet points that we put forward in that opening document, I encourage you to go back and look at that and the entire document and review what we put in there is addressed uh, in a way that we would hope to see at this point. So um, like I told you guys earlier, I would encourage everybody to write down what your priorities are early in this process and file that away, maybe take notes in the opener, and then go back and then benchmark that when you uh, see the contract at the end of the day. Because we're going after what your priorities are, and we're not going to tell you what they are, and they shouldn't change as we move through the process, no matter you know 
uh, depending on what you hear from different people. But just to give you a recap on uh, what we did get back. Um, so first of all, uh, there were weak protections just overall on the flying that we do. So basically there wasn't a carve out for small jet flying or anything like that and saying we'll do everything else. It, the language stayed largely the same as we currently have. Additionally, uh, they did limit small aircraft, but only at Alaska Airlines. So the company, not the air group, and it wasn't by seat and weight, it was by airframe. So again, that's nowhere close to anything approaching an industry approach. And additionally, that doesn't even give us real protections for larger aircraft, because they were also adamant that they want the opportunity or the ability to create an alter ego airline underneath the umbrella of the air group. So if they wanted to, they could get bigger aircraft and just place it in another company underneath the same banner. It does absolutely nothing to advance our job security in that regard. Additionally, it failed to address uh, any of the proposals we put in regarding co-chairing or joint ventures. And I think this is actually a unique opportunity to point out that in terms of what a consistent message about the pilot's needs and expectations have been regarding job security, and those expectations have been spoken of going back to before the merger when I was secretary treasurer and I heard the exact same thing that has been consistently expressed to the highest levels of management about what our needs and expectations are. And, you know, to, to see a pass back to us in this environment that failed to reflect the expectations that they already knew we had, this is not new news, was, was quite disappointing. Yeah, especially in light of the company telling our pilots that they've given us industry like approaches or uh, proposals regarding scope and I can tell you that what we got back from this and this and this round is nowhere approaching uh, what we would expect to see anywhere else so um, when you look at the job security and uh, what other pilot groups have you know those have been a result of both their management and their pilot groups realizing that they want to invest in those pilots and promise them that they're going to be part of the future of that company that's what we expect here as well. I mean, we put our whole lives into this company and uh, we want to be invested in it and know that management is uh, invested in us. Yeah, I was most disappointed by that narrative that they had delivered something that met the needs of the job security of the Alaska pilots, right? That met the pilot group's needs, I believe. And okay, that that's just indicative that we have already told you what the needs are. You don't tell us what our needs are and that reflects right back to complete the circle to where flight path is a problematic narrative it's about telling us what we need to know instead of listening to what we are telling you it's especially disappointing will when i said in no uncertain terms at the table that this proposal was wholly inadequate well i think david wouldn't you agree that you know you and i've been working together for the past year or two years this is the whole basis of the the birth of the whole safeguard our future campaign yeah, I mean yeah. this is this is exactly what we're concerned about, and, and by definition, safeguard our future means exactly that. Right, and this it's is beyond the CBA right. it, and beyond the negotiations. It's we, we want to have a future here. We, as Chris says, we've committed our careers to this place, and we would like this place to dedicate themselves to us as well. One of the key things that we have brought to management's attention is our concerns over attrition, 
It's we've never seen the numbers of pilots leave this airline like we have here recently. It causes us great concern. You know, why has this airline suddenly become a stepping stone airline? Yeah, and the, those attrition numbers would be helpful. So I think Will Swoblin can help us out with that. What what have you found out? Yeah, interesting that you use the word stepping stone because that is literally the word that has been used by several pilots during their exit interviews is that's what they now view this place as and what they see the future of this airline as. And that was one of their justifications for moving on. Yeah, tell us about the numbers. Um, that you that we've had in the last you know how how's that how's that shifted over the last three or four years sure <clears throat> we got numbers going all the way back into the 80s and things you know hummed along somewhat normally until just after 2016 2017 they spiked significantly i mean we went from a handful of resignations in 2016 to 23 of them in 2017 um, and it's it's pretty much stayed high mm-hmm. since then. What do you mean by handful of back you know before? The I mean less 20... than ten per year to now mm-hmm. double digits. Yeah, year after year, and it, and a an increase each year since. Yeah, and generally, I think any company is going to have some attrition, right? There might be someone who wants to live in a particular part of the country and gets a job at a company that has a base there, that kind of thing, or their spouse lives there, so. Those numbers are not too surprising, but the way it's been lately, like you said, it's a jump. And I think it was really nice that you did those exit interviews. Talk about that for me, if you would. Sure, you bet. So I was interested in finding out what is motivating people to make the decision to leave after after it takes so much effort to get here in the first place. Why would someone put in effort again to go somewhere else? So I went back into, as far as back as 2017, I've talked to nearly everyone I can from 18 and 19 as well, um, in addition to all the folks that have left here in 2020. And I asked them uh, essentially three simple questions. Uh, Where are you going? Uh, Why did you decide to leave Alaska Airlines? And what would it have taken for you to stay? And then I just sit back and listen and and try and compile what they have to say. And... (laughs) I can tell you that the biggest reason folks are leaving is for quality of life issues. Now, the results I get aren't super scientific because I got to kind of pick the points out from a from a conversation, either an email, a text, or a direct phone call. But the you know the quality of life reasons are cited number one. But unfortunately, right behind that one is the tone and the relationship with the management here. Do they expand on that at all? Uh, they do, and. You know, <laughs> that's kind of a a summary of uh, the tone with management. Like we could get into you know individual reasons. M- many pilots have specifically mentioned uh, you know certain phrases that were uh, in the transcripts by senior man- management here at Alaska Airlines. As you know, when they heard that, that kind of made a decision for them. Yeah, I think. I'm sorry. Go oh ahead, go. no, I was just going to say. I think that the key thing we've picked up on is that it exactly mirrors our concerns that we've identified uh, just through feedback from our own pilots, right? This is just an extension and extrapolation of it. And the fact that apparently that's acceptable as far as a narrative for why people are leaving this airline. So apparently it's equally acceptable for those of us who have to remain on property. Yeah. Acceptable to management. Yes. Yes. Exactly. They're just willing to live with that. Yeah. That's obviously the underpins what we're trying to fix. Right. Right. 
Will, I have a question for you, being a former um, JFK guy. How much did that influence into the uh, attrition numbers and wh what were your exit interviews like with those guys? It, it did. I mean, to be totally honest, the, the closing of the JFK base drove a number of folks um, to look elsewhere. And, you know, that's understandable if you're staring at a cross-country commute for the foreseeable future and you don't have that many years of service in, sure, why wouldn't you look out there? Uh, as far as like reasons for leaving, commuting was on the list. I mean, it, it was kind of one of the mid-range okay. reasons. Uh, a distant second to just the scheduling flexibility. And a number of the folks that decided to leave because of commuting issues cited the inflexibility of the scheduling that we have here as kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and well, we've talked, I mean, we've talked in generalities, and maybe I should point out that management's not concerned because of uh, the fact that these numbers, they, they say, adjusted on a percentage basis are not out of line with, uh, with comfortable attrition levels, um, as opposed to where our focus on absolute numbers. But I think y you've got some good absolute numbers there. Can you give us just some perspective in the last two, three years? Uh, sure. Uh, so from 2016 to 2017, uh, 2016 saw six people resign. 2017 saw 23. Uh, that was a big jump. And then year after year, it has it has grown. 2018 had 27 people resign. 2019, we were up to 39 pilots. And year to date so far, we are uh, at eight that have either resigned or, or given oh. notice that they'll be leaving. Yeah. <laughs> For 2020? Eight. Wow. That's it's the fifteenth. Yeah, that's shocking. Yeah. Is there any? Um, do you see any trends in demographics? Like I know a couple of guys took early outs a few years ago. Are they counted as that number, or do you see like that now it's younger guys that are leaving with opportunities out there? So yeah, interesting. I'd, I'd look back at through twenty eighteen, and it, the numbers were pretty clear. You, usually, someone got hired around thirty five, and they were leaving by age thirty seven with about two years of service. Uh, 2019 and particularly into 2020, that number, both the average age of someone leaving is going up and the average number of years that they have been here before they decide to leave is also going up. So older people with more seniority are still making the decision to go. Did any of the pilots you talked to report that they'd had a similar kind of exit interview with management? No, in fact, I've got several reports from folks that were surprised there was no exit interviewing. It just seemed, uh, you know, when they said, hey, I'm, I'm leaving, it was, here's an email, turn in your books and your badge. Yeah, that's, I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but that's shocking to me. I mean, it's, I've never had a job, certainly not a job at this caliber, that when I left, an exit interview wasn't a normal part of the course. And... You know, you'd think, especially when you see such the jump and the spikes that you've been talking about, that you'd want to know why if you were running that company. Yeah, even even for as big of an airline as United was, when I tendered the resignation to come here, I received a call out of thousands of pilots who must have made similar decisions to ask me why, what what underpinned my decision. Right. And when I left Com Air, I, there was an exit interview, and you know. The answer was pretty obvious at that point. Well, you're going on to a major. Everybody knew that, but they still wanted to know what was your experience like here. How was it? Could what could we have done 
you know, was there something you liked about working here? What can we do better? You know, when there was no expectation that they wanted to keep me, but they still wanted to know what my experience was like. And, you know, it also makes me think of our checklist that, you know, a few years ago we made a, a big effort at this company to kind of change how we did our briefings and, and especially our debriefings, right? And it's kind of an expectation. You pull up to the gate and turn to the other guy and go, well, how'd that go? What could we have done better? Exactly. And I, you'd think they would apply that in this case, um, but it they don't. And it just, I think, begs the question, how much do they really care about what we think? Uh, and the employee engagement survey should have, if nothing else, said, boy, we should really keep digging to see if we can learn more about what we can do to re-engage the, the pilots, the employees in general. Right. You know, Will, running the risk of sounding like I'm trying to toot our own horn, this stands in contrast to some of our recent work, and I'm thinking specifically of getting together to reevaluate the strategic plan. Ronan, you were at that meeting. You want to flesh that out a little bit for us? We took a look at the strategic plan that we drew up last year and the executive summary that we put out, and we basically did a report card on ourselves. We took it. Um, we took the people, the big pl- the players in this together and um, sat in a room and just basically asked each other, you know, how are we doing? And how have these threats that we outlined in that executive summary, do they still exist? Or are they getting worse? Are they getting better? Um, yeah, I, I might expand that there was a report card not just on ourselves, but also just as the strategic plan that was given to the pilots, the summary was. It's a report card also on management. I really found that a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that we identified as problems and we published actually as problems in that summary still exist. I, I'm still equally as concerned as I was um, back when we released that summary. And I, I just, I frankly, you know, I was optimistic early on that we could possibly see a different um, direction here that management would take in order towards solving the pilot's problems, but that's just apparent that that's not the case, um, that we're still I find us still very much stuck in a... Um well, it's as if we're, we're combating the same narratives for management that we were years yeah. ago. And Chris, you want to add something there? Uh, you know, I think a lot of it is uh, cultural. So, you know, every now and then there are things that might improve, and there are certainly people that are trying to do the right thing. But trying to move a culture to change its direction requires a heavy lift. And we haven't seen enough effort on that front yet to move this to where it really needs to go. Yeah, I, I'm actually more concerned than I was. I mean, from everything we've talked about, from the the grievances and um, lack of movement on the contract, and look at the attrition rate. I mean, pilots are, are just getting frustrated and deciding that it's a better choice to start over at a new airline then continue on with Alaska Airlines. So to me, that that's really concerning seeing that data and that management is is clueless. They just they're living in a bubble. Ronan, what can we expect in the next few months, given what you know all the things we've just been talking about? Yeah, thanks, David. So we're going to plan on um, continuing the engagement with the pilot group and the coffee sits. Try and get some family awareness events out there and try to get some unity building events out there. The primary purpose of those, of course, is to get in front of the pilots and then to give solicit feedback from the pilots as to 
making sure that we hear them, their needs are met, and to get direction from them as we continue to go down the path here towards getting them a contract. Um, We're also looking at some more education pieces coming out. Um, we'll be getting going here with a, about two or three different ones, much like we did with the scheduling, where there were a four or five part series. There'll be um, R&I, retirement and insurance education pieces coming out, and then some other ones on scope to make sure that guys fully understand when Chris and his team are talking about uh, different line items in the scope clause that they, are, they uh, understand what each one of those means. And uh, the other thing is we're going to have a polling session coming out in February. And that's a, a huge opportunity for pilots to make sure that, um, that they give us, you know, that what what we're asking from them, and we get we get that so we can actually move forward and continue to move fo ball forward accurately. The other thing too, I want to make sure that I, I emphasize is that if you're not, you know, with the Wilson polling, it's it's a segment. That's a very scientifically done polling, but it's it is a segment of the pilot group. And, and an often question I get is, I haven't been called, or I haven't had my voice heard. Well, one of the most important ways you can do that, and I will continue to preach this, is please talk to your reps. You know, you can email the negotiating committee, you can email your reps, you can talk to your reps, pick up the phone. We're always wanting to hear that input and we're always wanting to make sure that we're hitting the marks and hitting the things that you need. I want to emphasize what Chris said with, this is your contract, so it's really important. Yeah, I like to stress that point too. There are a number of ways we gather information about the pilot group. Polling is one, and direct contact with the reps is one. So it, it's we don't get everything from just one of those sources. They're all important, and they all have their strengths, and um, that's why we use each one of them. And they all come to. I mean, we're just finishing up an MEC meeting, a week-long MEC meeting, where all of those elements come together: the polling, the feedback to the reps, and uh, the emails. In, in terms of our discussions to make sure that we're hitting the mark. All right. Well, I think we're getting close to a, a good time to wrap this up, and I'll ask for some closing remarks from most of you in, in a minute. But before I do, I, I do want to circle back to Will Swovlin and about his committee. He's been gearing up a, a new program about mentorship, and I know that's very near and dear to, to his heart and also uh, McQuillan to yours. So, Will, Tell us a little bit more about your committee and, and this new effort you're undertaking. Yeah, you bet. Membership committee um, does a, a bunch of different jobs for the MEC. We, we process the position bids uh, in conjunction with Flight Crew Administration, or Diane Myers. Uh, we help Diane maintain the seniority list that gets published twice a year. But the bulk of our work revolves around uh, the new hire pilots. I'm usually, or my, myself or someone from my committee is the first person they see on typically day two. Uh, we do a, a benefits lunch and describe to them all of the contract benefits that are available to them and then all of the additional benefits that are available through participation in, in the Airline Pilots Association. And then depending on what fleet they're on, they will see someone from our committee again, either end of training or in the middle of training, uh, where we get them for a whole day to go through all of the contract touch points, the how to sit reserve, how to bid, how to bid vacation, and then uh, you know the civics behind how this association works. What does my rep do? How are they elected? What does the MEC do? What does Alpa National do for me? Um, it tends to be a rather long day, as anyone who's sat through it recently knows, uh, but it's, it's the only chance we have to get face-to-face -to, -face to kind of pass on as much knowledge as we can before they're out flying the line. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of information that goes through there. I mean, the fire hose analogy, I think, applies to your day. I mean, not you do the best job you can, but it is a lot of information to to get through. What what can we do? You know, the rest of us who aren't new hires, how how can we help that process of getting uh, new hires educated about Alpha? Great question. Well, you know, one of the I, I, I tell the new hires one of the biggest resources they have is the pilot sitting next to them. They've by default been here longer. They've been doing this. They've they've made a set of mistakes that can be learned from. So, you know, definitely inquire from your flying partner how to do things uh, better or differently. Uh, you know, going back to that Alpa day, it, it is a fire hose. It is you know a solid day of PowerPoint presentations and a ton of material that no one can digest and retain at the end of so we tried to come up with a, a new system to kind of help re-deliver that information at a timely part of their new year and when particular information is most relevant to them and we we created this pilot mentor program which just kicked off this year so a lot of that information that they get in Alpa Day will be made available to them again when it's most relevant. So it's it's spread out over the course of their probationary year. Are you looking for volunteers still, or how does somebody get involved? In <laughs> I am, and thank you. Yeah, so I, I am very much interested in talking to line pilots who are out there doing this job every day that would like to kind of share their knowledge and experience with the new hire pilots coming on. Uh, Particularly, I'm looking for mentors in the LA base on both fleets and the San Francisco base, just because that is where, by default, most of our new hire pilots go. That's where the vacancies end up on position bids. But I'm open to volunteers in all bases and and all fleet types and all seat positions for that matter. Uh, This is not a captain or FO thing. I just want people that have been doing this for a little while uh, who are willing to step up and help out the new folks. Yeah, and mentorship doesn't necessarily have to be in that formalized position either, right? Where any of us who've been here for a while are, it's part of what we do, I think, is mentor people along. I know that's kind of near and dear to your heart, Will, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's the most important thing that we've done in terms of uh, bringing this, this pilot group together is share ideas, share thoughts. When you fly with somebody who's new to you from a different fleet or new to you as a new hire is to explain to them a little bit of the history of uh, not just where this airline's come from but where you've come from personally the more we talk the better we are well if people want to get in touch with you what's how should they do that you bet well uh there's a myriad different ways i can be reached directly at william.swoveland at alpha.org if you're interested in getting involved with the membership committee uh, ALA membership at alpha.org. And if you're interested in becoming a pilot mentor, ALA mentor at alpha.org. Thank you, Swoblin. I know you put a ton of work into that mentor program, so thanks for spooling that up. Well, let's switch gears to some final comments from each of you. Chris, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so, you know, David, uh, as I sit here today, it's uh, only two and a half months left until the amendable date. That's coming up very quickly. So we still have a lot of dates on the calendar, but if you remember, we started this early, and the company opened early with the intent of being able to complete it by the amendable date. So there's a heavy lift between now and then uh, required for management if they're serious about addressing your issues by that date. So we're prepared, we're ready to move forward, 
but um, I just want everybody to be aware that uh, that's where we're headed. And uh, if you're not paying attention already, I hope uh, you certainly start now. And uh, like we always say, we're always available to answer questions and uh, feel free to reach out to us and especially your LEC reps. I think that's perfect because uh, part of this meeting that we're about to conclude has involved kind of a reflective look back on where we were a year ago at the merging of the MECs and the plans that we had laid out to be able to attain an agreement by the amendable date and, uh, you know, to be able to be transparent with the pilots and to be able to truly achieve what it is that uh, that the pilots expect. And, uh, you know, I am quite proud of this pilot group in terms of um, what we've been able to achieve and, and where we've gotten. And I would say that I would hope that management would be able to set the same goals and hopefully be able to, uh, to rise to the occasion as well. As we move forward, I think it's important in these, as Chris just said, there's not a lot of time between now and the amendable date. So the time to pay attention, the time to be engaged is, is certainly ripe. Looking back on where we are, and it was really just a short time ago that we had the SLI award and the merging of the MECs. And um, the Alaska pilots really joined together as one group and they're focused on what's really important. It's the contract and just the, the unity that is developing between the two former groups into the one group we are today is, it, it's remarkable. Actually, Keith, you bring up a great point. Over the past three years, you know, Tim Canole put it in his message last year, this, this MEC has been through a lot. We came from two different um, carriers, got through a JCBA, got through an SLI, merged them, and we're flying each other's equipment. We're in each other's aircraft. We're sitting beside new colleagues now that we were flying for two different carriers three years ago. We've done an incredible job of getting ourselves through it. and. We've kind of solved a big problem for management, right? Absolutely. So can they please solve ours? Right. Yeah, that point was made pretty well in one of those conversations to management is that we did our part. We delivered in terms of uh, an MEC and a pilot group the ability for management to succeed. And the challenge is now in their court. Well, let's hope they step up to that challenge. Will, thank you for those final thoughts, and thank you all for coming in today. Yeah, thanks, David. Yep, thank you very much, David. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me in. You've been listening to the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communication Chairman, Captain David Campbell.